Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. You can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play, or watch it on YouTube. In this and future podcasts, I sit down with leaders who are shaping the future of higher education in America and beyond. We dive into the challenges and opportunities facing higher education and explore policies and practices that show promise of a brighter future. Hope that you will find these conversations stimulating and thought-provoking. And if you do, please subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Again, I'm your host, President, Georgia State President Mark Becker, and today my guest is Dr. Bridget Burns, the Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance, also known as the UIA. Welcome, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here in Atlanta. Uh, so if you would start off by just telling us what is the UIA and, and why is it important? Why, why does it matter? Well, the UIA is a consortium of 11 universities that was founded in 2014 by 11 university presidents and chancellors who united around a sense of urgency that we were really not producing enough college degrees as a country to meet the future economic demand. And we were also doing a really terrible job when it came to low-income first-generation and students of color. And so this group of leaders, yourself included, came together in a room and just started having a conversation that needed to be had, which was, you know, what are you doing? Uh, what have you learned? Are we doing something different? I would like to scale that. Um, boy, couldn't we team up and actually work on this together? And what could we do if we built something together? And that really basic conversation led to over time, these institutions really formalizing into a network that is trying to transform their institutions around student success, where we scale up what works across each across the campuses, and we set very big, ambitious goals um, that are trying to actually make a mark on the country, and we're modeling a kind of behavior that hasn't really been seen in higher ed, where institutions are typically going it alone. And so, you know, over the past five years, our campuses have increased their low-income degrees by 27,000 low-income graduates, which is pretty significant. Uh, we have about 400,000 students and 120,000 low-income. And we've scaled up a lot of things, and we've already been exceeding a lot of our goals. And now we're actually inspiring a lot of others to mimic this work. And we're interested in trying to bring that broader conversation together to help make sure ideas are diffusing, we're scaling up what works, and ultimately we're transforming the future of our country um, so that your background no longer predicts your future in terms of student success and, and whether or not you ha can end up with a degree that can transform the future uh, for your family. That's terrific. It's important work, and we're going to dive a little more into the challenges and opportunities later, but I know you come to this work not only as a job, but really a, as a personal passion. So would you, would you tell us a little bit about your background, your path, how you come to this role where you're being a, lead, a leader for literally the transformation of higher education, particularly in our large public institutions? Well, I come to this work kind of as exhibit A of the type of student we're trying to serve. Um, I grew up in poverty in rural Montana. Um, my uh, family of four grew up, in, I think it was like $14,000 a year annually. My father's been in a wheelchair since I was two years old, and my mom stayed home and took care of him. So nobody was really working, and um, I really wasn't encouraged to go to college. But if I was going to, I, I always knew that I would have to pay for it myself, and I would have to figure it out on my own. And I didn't... Um, I was given, just like millions of other students, really bad advice. My dad told me that if I wanted to go to college, I should win a state championship in wrestling. 
like my brother. And uh, did they have girls wrestling in Montana? They, they did for a hot minute, and it was not great for me. They do now, but um, back then it was not as cool. Okay. Um, and so I took that seriously, and I focused on winning a state championship in debate. But the downside of that is I completely neglected my studies. I barely eked out of high school with a 2.3 GPA. And it turns out there's not as much interest in a mediocre student um, who can argue well as there is for a Big Ten athlete. Um, So I stumbled to a community college and then on seven years later, graduated with my bachelor's. And along the way, graduated with 50 extra credits I didn't need because I didn't really get the interventions or the guidance. Um, At every turn, I assumed the institution was looking out for me and I assumed that the grown-ups were watching and they weren't. And so, you know, a lot of our work is really about enabling our institutions to intervene and to actually be keeping an eye out and to reach out to students um, and provide the kind of guidance that I thought was always missing in my experience. Um, And then beyond my personal kind of upbringing, I also kind of sat around the higher ed table in various seats. I was a student body president. Um, I was on the State Board of Higher Education, so I've overseen multiple institutions. I was on my first presidential hiring committee when I was 22, Ed Ray, who's now Mm -hmm. retiring. Oregon State University. From Oregon State, yeah. And um, then I went on to be the chief of staff for a university system. And then, you know, it all kind of led me to this fundamental question of I, I was responsible for representing universities in the legislature, and I was kind of like throwing a ball on the floor and then I was always surprised that the presidents would throw elbows because we were kind of pitting them against each other to try and you know whether it's enrollment you know resources all that kind of stuff and I wanted to pull out of this work to understand why collaboration was so difficult and I also wanted to understand what innovative universities were doing that was truly different because I'd heard all these things but I didn't really know And so I went off in an ACE fellowship, and that's what led me to showing up right at the right moment in time when you all were having that conversation. And you did your ACE fellowship where? At ASU. I followed Michael Crow around for a year. Arizona State University. And it was was really Michael who proposed this idea, I think, about a year before you became an ACE fellow. Actually, maybe a few months before. You guys had your first meeting in June of 2013, and I showed up that fall. And um, they had some, some other folks helping, and I just kind of was around and and like I said I, I was kind of free labor who was <laughs> I had nothing to do and uh, I was interested well, you, well, in this. you had a year to do something you had to figure out what I, it was yeah and I also at this while I went away they collapsed the university system in Oregon and so I didn't have anything to go back to so okay. I really had every reason to go you know as aggressively as possible to do whatever it took to help this be successful because I didn't I didn't have something to go back to but if I if I think about your story and your path um, up to and including the ACE experience it's really as if you yourself had to find your way through the forest. Mm-hmm. And you now saw an opportunity to build roads for others so that they wouldn't have to literally find their way through the forest. There would be a more direct path mm-hmm. uh, to the point that you're able to get to, you know, from growing up poor in Montana to, you know, being able to have a successful career. You now have a PhD. You know, you're a leader of a major EDD. National, it's EDD. not quite you know, well, fancy. You have a doctorate. <laughs> you have a doctorate. But, you know, in some way to, to make those, to make it less to make it more direct so that people who are not born with advantages out of um, from the beginning um, ha- see the pathway there and that it's not doesn't require as much um, luck if you will and as much 
um, navigating through a forest that is full of all sorts of nasty creatures that are trying to stop you, which are hurdles that are maybe not, maybe not even intentional. It's just a, it's a tough, tough trip. Yeah, and I know that's true for you as well, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that's the defining element of the UIA is that the presidents and chancellors who helped form this, um, they all were either former first-generation low-income or students of color, and they have personal passion, which yeah. I know you do. And I think one of the defining elements of our work is we're trying to be the change that we wished existed. Like, every time we run into a thing that should have existed, like, it should be easier to work with ed tech. It should be easier to work together. There should be a professional development pipeline for people who are younger in their careers to actually help institutions be better. And so every time we go somewhere and doesn't exist, we just are going to try and create it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're in, a, we're in an entrepreneurial space, I would say. Entrepreneurial, and you also talk about. I know in other times we've been in meetings and on stages talking about safe spaces to share failures because in higher education, the people that you know get to the positions you and I are in are the people that were successful at every step. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like the world of entrepreneurship where people fail and go again and fail and go again and, and eventually make it. There's a lot of um, success, success, success for the people who get to the level of running these institutions. And so it's, it's creating an environment where, you know, we don't have to hide what didn't work. We can talk about what works, what doesn't work, and talk about how do you scale these opportunities, yeah. these I mean, programs. I mean, within the, the – I mean, that's a core part of the UIA. We, uh, much of our kind of thinking was born out of Brene Brown's research where it's really about you, you share your story with people who've earned the right to hear it. And we know that we have to create spaces where people can be somewhat vulnerable to unpack failure. Um, the, one of the things about higher ed that difference, differs mm-hmm. from – the, some other sectors is it, it seems like in higher ed that the president of a community college, the president of uh, a rural institution, a president of a large research, they all feel like they're in the same competitive landscape. And so mm-hmm. there's not really a place where you can trust each other and get to know each other and share about hard things. Um, whereas the CEO of Xerox and the CEO of Amazon, and they, they, they believe they're not in the same competitive space. Right. So the CEOs can often actually have some of the conversations they need to. One of the things that was always stressful for me is um, – you know, watching the university presidents and seeing how difficult it is for them to do this job that's just so overwhelming. And then I would ask them, like, you know, who, what presidents do you talk to? Who are you friends with? And it felt more like people had colleagues. But when you're in the foxhole and your board's coming for you, you don't call one of those people. And well, we the, usual, the usual line is these are lo- lonely jobs. Yeah. You're, and, you're out there by yourself. And it shouldn't be because we, we, need, we need people to actually sustain in this work. We need people to be, the, be their best. And it's really hard when every interaction for a university president they have is with someone who either works for them or who wants something from them. But mm-hmm. Very rarely do you engage with people who have no agenda and can just give you kind of unvarnished feedback and advice. And it seems like if we could build these relationships amongst the board where you could trust each other and actually talk about this stuff, it would help you be better. Well, one of the other pieces, you know, in addition to that, that safe space for discussing failure and challenge that I know you brought to the UIA from the beginning, and you and Tim Rennick remember this very vividly because it's really changed my thinking about of the work we were doing at Georgia State and the work we do today, which is design thinking. And, you know, so looking at um, how do we design our institutions so that it better serves universities. I mean, when I watch mo- much of what happens in higher education, people are looking, do I buy this piece of software? Do I have this initiative? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the question we get all the time. What's the secret sauce? Or 
of all the things you've done, I got this question last week, of all the things you've done, what's the one thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you really, your work with the, the UIA liaisons, the people that are doing this work, and they're out on the campuses, to really come at it from a design thinking perspective. So could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about you know that, the design thinking perspective and why you thought that was important and how it's been important to the UIA? I think, um, so one of the, the cornerstone of design is that you start with empathy and you have to actually understand who you're trying to serve. And that's something that in higher ed is a luxury we have not had. We haven't had the time to actually work on our work. It's uh, most of higher ed, we're trying to kind of be everything to everyone and it's super reactionary and we just add more things onto our plate. But in design thinking, it's actually, you start with design, you start with what is, if you don't assume you know what the problem is. You don't assume you know what the need is. You actually need to be super curious and engage in a process of activities that kind of surface the real question and identify what a real solution would look like. And too often we're kind of just like, well, let's just throw this on there and like, let's solve it with this. And and, and it's it's mainly, um, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable space that I see everywhere. And it, mm-hmm. at, the, at the core, it's that the incentives and what we do, nothing was actually designed around students. It was designed to kind of get by, to survive, to um, build an institution that would accomplish one of the million things we're trying to do. And one of the things we try and do in the UIA is actually work on our design to ask questions about our incentives and whether or not things are actually serving students. And to to make that more concrete for your listeners, like a really good example of this is at every university I go to, we allegedly care about graduation it's an objective that is a really important mm-hmm. outcome. And yet at every university I go to, the university, when the student is ready to graduate, the university doesn't know. The student has to tell them. I know that's not true here, mm-hmm. but at most universities, the student has to say, I'm ready to graduate. Then the student has to fill out a bunch of paperwork. Mm-hmm. Then the student has to pay a fee. If that's the objective you wanted people to achieve, like that doesn't make up, that's not good design, right? right? Exactly. It should be uh, it should be an easy and flowing, and and it should be like, w- frankly, the student shouldn't even be involved in most of this. We should make it a, a great experience. Um, and we, we certainly know whether or not they're ready to graduate. Yeah, you do. We, we have all the data. Yeah, yeah. So the goal is that other institutions can um, take ideas that have already been proven out um, to try and help improve their design, so that they really the student is at the center. And if we can scale it up, if we can adapt it, um, that ultimately over time, that every university in this country should actually be designed around the needs of students and student success. And that doesn't mean we become less rigorous or less focused on producing groundbreaking research. It's just, do we need to have terrible design in order to do that? I don't think so. Well, if you pull out your crystal ball, so you, you know the challenges, you're all over the country, I mean, you've been all over the world, you know, this work. Um, you're not only working with UIA institutions, you're working with states, you're working with boards, you're talking to basically anybody that'll listen because this work is so important. So if you look out 5, 10, 20 years, uh, do you see this as a revolutionary transformation of higher ed that we're actually going to redesign it? Um, are, are there other major transformations that you see or do you see that uh, this, there's so much inertia that we're just going to see more of the same in the future and there will be examples but not change, transformative, transformative change across higher ed? Well, I'm betting my career that we have a transformative impact and we raise conversations in a, um, in a framework that feels different, that actually helps higher ed be able to deal with some of these hard questions we've never handled. Um, we, I mean, part of the, the UI has a very conversational way of talking about things. We don't 
fancify everything. We don't polish everything up. Um, we try and raise topics that need, like, so we're doing a redesign of the handoff between college and career, right. something that in the past universities were always super defensive and like, no, what we do is fine. Um, I, so I want to see We're not vocational us, institutions. This is about yeah. thinking. Yeah, right? I mean, it's like we're super con we're so conflicted about admitting that a lot of the people, most everyone who comes to a university, at the end, they want a job. Uh, so 99, 98%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe we should have an intentionally designed handoff and not just like race them to graduation and then say, peace out and call them two weeks later and ask for a donation and like not, and then say, by the way, stop off at career services to get your resume polished for five minutes. I mean, so we're trying to redesign that place and, and that's elevating a conversation that needs to happen. Um, I want us to do more of that. I want mm -hmm. us to to unpack all these taboo topics that we have not that have not been something handled by higher in the past. And I do think that creating a broader ecosystem where the diffusion of innovation is easier, it is uh, it's seamless, and it's a place where like universities actually can know whether or not they're doing the right thing. I mean, there's a lot of insecurity out there. Of it's frankly quite difficult to be a president and know that your university is doing what it should. Um, that you're actually working on the right things and that you're actually focused on the right priorities. It's, it's super hard, and I think that should be easier. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of, like, my hope and dreams, I think that, well, in five years, we're going to see more universities sh shutting down. I know that. Um, I would hope that we actually leverage what we already know. So there are examples of things where you stop doing something and it doesn't feel demoralizing or trauma, like it doesn't traumatize the people who did it. Emeritus president honors that the person did the work, honors the, an experience that happened. We already have a model that you can retire something and it doesn't need to take away all that it was. I think higher ed is smart and we have, we, we literally have all the smart people. And I think that we can come up with a way to transition departments or institutions or do mergers in a way that is less painful and that is seamless and effective. Um, we have to because it's going to have to happen. And I don't think it should cost. Um, people of their careers. It shouldn't be devastating in mm -hmm. local uh, economies. And I think it's a worthy undertaking that higher ed figure out how to do this well. And I know that with your recent um, you know, engagement in terms of merging with Georgia Perimeter, you mm -hmm. took different strategies to do that that were going to be more about building consensus and building mm -hmm. community. And I think that that's getting us one step in the right direction. And we're already seeing from, like things are so much better now in terms of the data there. Um, and, and I see, the, see that example, but then I look at other places in the country where they're trying to do mergers and it's actually harming the institution. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is something that the smart people should undertake, that if we know that there, the economics lead to less universities, let's do that in a way that is actually strategic and smart, and let's bring let's bring folks together because I think this doesn't have to be devastating. Oh, Bridget, that, that's great, and I look forward to having you back on the podcast in future episodes and your future travels through Atlanta. Happy um, to come. This is great work that you're doing, and certainly um, I'm glad you're betting your future on it. And, <laughs> You know, as, as you said, I've been with uh, the UIA since the beginning. I was fortunate to be invited by Michael Crow to that meeting to really bounce the idea around and launch it. And, and you being able in your um, ACE fellowship year to be able to pick this up and really run with it and develop it is, has been um, absolutely crucial to the success of the work that we've done so far. And we have so much more to do together. Uh, this has been Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. And you've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Bridget Burns, head of the University Innovation Alliance. To hear future conversations with leaders who are helping shape the future of higher education, you will find conversations with Mark Becker on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play, as well as on YouTube. 
Thank you for listening, and remember to subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Goodbye for now.